My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. And in this episode, I will be taking a look at the recent Blu-ray release of Jack Clayton's Room at the Top. And before that, however, I will be taking a look at Claire Denny's new film, High Life. She's mine. that didn't fit into the system until someone had the bright idea of recycling us to serve science. The odds are not in our favor, but when my work is accomplished, when perfection is achieved, then what? Fly away? I know I look like a witch. You're Foxy and you know it. This mission can't turn our shame into some type of glory. I can't do this flying around no more. You lied to us. You knew it. The sensation, moving backwards. Yeah. Even though we're moving forwards, getting further from what's getting nearer. There is nothing to fear. Everything's gonna be fine. Are you sick? Do you realize nothing is ever gonna go inside us? Break the laws of nature. You'll pay for it. Now, by my own admission, I have not seen a great many deal of Claire Denny's films, and it's something that I will be addressing in due course. What I do know is that I most definitely do not like her last film, which was Let the Sun Shine In. This is of course because I am a cisgender white male and a misogynist who thinks that women should not be allowed to direct films. Actually, it's not. It's because I found it to be a rather inconsequential film. I never really got to the heart of it. And every time I thought it was going somewhere interesting, it seemed to wander off in another place. And I found myself caring less and less about what was actually happening in the film. And I've largely forgotten it as it mostly passed me by. And it's annoying when that happens. And because possibly you even know or sense there is something in that film that should keep you invested in it but for whatever reason it's hard to find a way in which I guess is why the whole idea of a second viewing is good after all. Yet when I heard that Denny was making a new film, a science fiction one no less, and her first English language film too, 
not like that really kind of matters one way or the other. I was also taken by the fact that Robert Patterson was going to be in it. Now, Patterson is an interesting actor. Mention his name, the default position people go to is to start dissing the Twilight films, and yes, I've seen them all. I hasten to add this was because I lost a bet and was forced to over the course of one Sunday. And of course, the problem with Patterson is that he is associated as being a celebrity first in many regards. The TMZ hashtag friendly K-Stew reference to his ex-girlfriend Kristen Stewart, who is also an equally brilliant actor and possibly my favourite one working today. And it seemed that this was that they were all famous for, for just being a couple. But if you actually bothered to look, you will find that Patterson and Kristen Stewart since Twilight have been involved in a number of varied and interesting projects, sometimes as the lead and sometimes not, and some of his films have not been great, although not a result of his performances. 2017's Good Time perhaps being his finest film to date, playing an indebted thief trying to shield his disabled brother from the authorities, it's a tough to film to watch at times and Patterson completely seals the vulnerability of the character and the desperation of the situation with such ease, I'm surprised the performance wasn't more lauded than it actually was. There's also the excellent The Lost City of Z, The Childhood of the Leader, The Rover, Life, and an impressive list of directors who he has worked with, David Cronenberg, Anton Corbin, Werner Herzog, and soon to be Christopher Nolan. And now, of course, we have Claire Denny. So it would seem he is an actor that auteurs like to work with, and I'm pleased for one that he's been cast as Bruce Wayne, although I feel it might actually be the minority when it comes to that one. Which in turn brings me to high life. Now, science fiction is personally my favourite genre, from books to TV to films. I love it, and I like nothing more than being made to think, to ponder, to contemplate in the company of a decent science fiction offering. High Life is science fiction that eschews space battles, clever technology and the like, and instead focuses on more primal concerns. Semen, sweat, blood, feces, sex, violence, parenthood, crime and punishment. Now if this doesn't sound that much fun, that's because it isn't, and it's worth noting from the off, I did not enjoy High Life, and I would suggest anyone who says they do are lying. Moreover, this is a film you experience as a kind of shared trauma with the characters, and suffice to say, whether or not you like it will largely, will largely depend on how far you are willing to look past some of the film's very obvious flaws. I personally found High Life frustrating, because I was unsure as to what Denny was actually trying to accomplish with it. Largely, this stems as well from what I believe to be a very flawed central storyline. It revolves around a mission to a black hole in order to use the energy created by it back on Earth. There is, however, a one-way trip, unbeknownst to the crew of ship number seven, being made up of former death row inmates who have traded their sentence for the mission. Patterson plays Monty, convicted of killing his best friend over a dog, and when we first meet him, he's seemingly alone on the ship with a baby, whom he's called Willow. Through a series of flashbacks, we learn the fate of the crew, in particular the ship's medic, Dibs, Juliette Binoche, who herself has murdered her own children and husband, and forcibly tries to impregnate the females on board with the male crew member's sperm, and unsurprisingly, having a crew made up of rapists and murderers, this may not be a good idea in the first place. Denny appears to be playing a thought experiment, 
What happens when you take a group of people who have through their crimes ostracised them away from society, stick them on a ship with no way of ever returning, and, ha and explore how these people cope? How do they survive? What becomes the point of their existence? Is there a chance of rebirth? The problem, or at least as far as I could see it, is that High Life offers very little insight into any of this central hypothesis, or at least anything that we have already seen before, yet I cannot deny the film had me utterly transfixed as to where it was going. Its mood, its atmosphere and this sense of existential dread permeated it throughout. During the film's opening few minutes, Denny sets her stall. This is a lo-fi science fiction film. What I assume to be the control room is merely a PC at a desk. There is no viewing deck out onto the void of space, just an interface that looks a bit like Windows, and the crew must send a daily status report to Earth to ensure that the ship's life support systems remain turned on. The corridors resemble that of Tarkovsky's Solaris, which is seemingly the film's visual reference point. A garden which provides food and oxygen and a whole load of visual metaphors which we can discuss in due course, and a variety of functional and rather dull rooms from bunks to a wastewater recycling plant and a masturbation room to alleviate the crew's sexual tension. There are occasional forays into space and decidedly interstellar type encounters with a black hole and the occasional flashback to Earth that it takes even more cues from the Tarkovsky inspired shots. But ultimately, Denny's interest is not on the gadgets or the science fiction, but on bigger, more loftier ideas that she tries to explore. The hierarchy of the ship seems to suggest a kind of anarchism. Knowing the ship must produce babies in order for existence to continue, did provide drugs for the men in exchange for semen, which the Yunus try to impregnate the female crew members. Dibs is also able to keep the crew sedated through control of the amount of drugs in the water supply. She appears to be in control, whether this is mandated from Earth is never really explained, and it's also hard to tell whether the inseminations are something which has been planned on Earth, or it's just something that has evolved in this new brutal hierarchy on board. Regardless, the consequences of this are sometimes fatal to the crew, and the babies don't seem to last that long either, with most of them dying straight away. But what is apparent is that sexual desires on board the ship are never fully adequately resolved. The crew have a masturbation room, and it's not far from the orgasmatron from Woody Allen's sleeper to take care of matters, and we are treated to quite possibly one of the most ridiculous and frankly unnecessary masturbation scenes in the history of film. Dibs enters the masturbation room and places a condom on a dildo and mounts a machine and proceeds to have what can best be described as a very good time with it. It is a monumentally terrible scene, complete with orgasmic groans on the soundtrack that goes on way too long to the point whereby people in the screening I was in began to laugh. And that may have been the point, who actually knows? I personally thought it was utterly ridiculous. And that's not because I'm a prude, it's just because this scene offered absolutely nothing. Like most sex scenes, it was completely pointless. But what is clear, is that from all her experiments and failure to actually produce a living baby, Dibs becomes even more obsessed with fulfilling this particular goal. Her attentions turn to Monty, who has declared himself celibate, and this in turn spurns Dibs to become even more sexually infatuated with him. 
culminating in what can best be described as a rape after drugging him and using his semen to impregnate one of the other crew members. The child survives and is Willow that we see from the start. And due to High Life's non-linear narrative, we're invited to see events after this conception in possibly even more troubling ways. There is an uncomfortable through line in the film between the relationship between Sex and the crew. Has Willow only survived because she was convinced by a man more pure than the others? Monty is not consumed by the repressed sexual desires that afflict his crewmates. And naturally, of course, there is a rape attempt during the course of the film by one of the other male crew. I felt the film was asking the question that because Dibbs actually desired Monty and made him ejaculate, this was as close as natural a conception as the strange warped world was going to be able to produce. Was in a way this kind of seen as a divine conception of sorts. I'm not entirely sure to be brutally honest with you. And then he strips away any normal structure in this world. There's just a blank canvas with to explore the human condition and if this all sounds very Solaris then I suppose it most certainly is. And I've heard a lot of critics praise the film for the fact that the further they go out there the further they go inside of themselves yet have we not been here so many times before and the answer to that is most definitely yes is it like disney's the black hole yeah absolutely it is yet what lays beyond pushes even more boundaries than perhaps we are even comfortable contemplating and it's no spoiler to say obviously that the crew eventually whittled down just to monty and willow who we first see as a baby and then as a teen willow her reintroduction as a teen also allows us to know that he is menstruating as she lies next to Monty in a vest and knickers. She is, as we can tell, clearly able to produce children. Monty at the start of the film talks to the baby Willow about taboos, and one can't help but wonder if another one is about to be broken, and we're about to see the evolution of some kind of new societal norm, albeit one that we are completely disgusted by. And a recurring visual motif in the film is the ship's garden. It invokes the likes of silent running, although it's on a vastly smaller scale. This small patch of Eden could be a metaphor for the actual Old Testament Eden. And there is, of course, something a little bit fishy about Adam and Eve. Eve, after all, is a clone made from the rib of Adam, who they, who they begin the human race with. If that is true, at the very least, he fucked himself. At worst, it was his sister. Either way, it's all very, very, very disturbing. Willow and Monty are heading toward a black hole. What lies beyond it, we don't know. And Denis is not going to give you a straight answer either. Now, needless to say, High Life was a difficult film to get to grips with. The characters in this scenario act entirely how they do in films like this. They brutalise each other, murder each other, try and rape each other and on this ship which is effectively their punishment their violence are actions are without any kind of out any further societal consequence they are already doomed to whatever fate befalls them their reports back to earth ensure that they're able to keep on living but what is the point what life is this high life is a primal film we see it in bodily fluids, the piss, the shit, the cum, the blood, the breast milk that regularly covers the crew, whose mission, if successful, will bring them zero benefit at all. Their life is simply about making it towards the next day, and in Dibs' case, trying to continue the crew's lineage by her breeding experiments. 
But again, I just felt like we'd all been here before. Logan's Run, Alien 3, The Black Hole Against Solaris, Demon Scene, 2001, to name but a few. And you need only watch any zombie film to know who the real bad guys are. And let's be honest, it's always us. What I wondered was the thesis for this film. And whilst watching it, my mind died from one thought to another. In one section, another almost identical ship appears and docks with Willow and Monty's. When Monty goes on board, the only life on this ghost ship are dogs that have clearly resorted to killing each other in order to survive. It's nature at its most base, literally dog eat dog. Yet Monty's crew have fared no better, raping and killing each other, and with the ever-present suggestion of incest on the horizon, are we no better than these animals floating out there in space? Are we cut adrift from the structure we impose on ourselves, just deep down savage creatures ready to resort to the very worst we can be? Suffice to say it's a hard film to watch at times, yet for its confined setting, Denny does manage to conjure some truly impressive visual sequences. I was never bored looking at the film, it never felt repetitive, helped in part by the non-linear narrative that would see a corridor pristine one minute and then covered in excrement at a different time the next. And with some excruciatingly beautiful composed shots tightly framing the crew and their surroundings, I was always drawn into the image and when we do get the glimpses of space, the black hole effects were indeed impressive and this was very much Christopher Nolan's interstellar in that regard, with a black hole being a huge terrifying oddity of warped time and space just there, leaving us in wonder, terrifying as to what might lie on the other side. But it was also an immensely frustrating film too. Denny never seems to have fun with the genre. The aforementioned control room basically a PC and a desk, felt that in this film it was just a kind of triviality to really explore this type of technology as it would almost be too generic or too formulaic for the perceived seriousness of the film. Did we need an extravagant flight deck? Well of course not. Did it matter? No, not at all. But I did rather think Denny had forgotten to enjoy the genre and in doing this in turn bringing about the other issue I had with the film. The central scenario itself is hard to take seriously. On the one hand, this is a film that obviously wants you to take it very seriously. It wants to ask some big question and demands you pay attention to it, which I'm fine to do. But in turn, you wonder about the logic of its central premise. Why would anyone in their right mind send these people into space in the first place on such an important mission? Michael Bay sent oil rig workers to space in Armageddon, and in some respects that makes complete sense. Claire Denny wants to send murderers and rapists on a mission of massive scientific significance, yet doesn't even stop and ask why anyone, or indeed how anyone, could supposedly think that this was a good idea at all. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? The film felt oddly contrived in this regard, and I was aware, again, that it wasn't really saying a great deal of anything really that worthy of note. But yet it has stayed with me, at the very least it's provocative and demanding and whether or not it's anything more profound remains to be seen. I'm glad it's been made, I like the idea that cinema can still place you without a safety net and lord knows having worked my way through all the Marvel films over the past few, few months this is one heck of a tonic. It may be her English debut film as well but make no mistake it is nowhere an indicator that she is ready to start making films for the masses and bow to mass market consideration. This is the work of an auteur who has thankfully been given the means to make this type of film and I for one cannot wait to see what she does next 
and also to go through that back catalogue and hopefully I can catch High Life again relatively soon and see if that all-important second viewing makes me appreciate it any more. That's not for you, lad. I can look, can't I? Not with that, you can't. There's a law against undressing women in street. Hello, is that you, Mrs. Thompson? Charles Soames here. I was wondering if I might bring a Mr. Lampton to see you. Yes, we'll be at the house long before that. Thank you, Mrs. Thompson. Well, that's as good as fixed under the best digs in Wanley, too. Is that what you really want? The Clark's dream, the girl with the Riviera tan and the Lagonda. That's what I'm going to have. You can picture the scene. January 1959 and a group of young cinema goers enticed to watch a new film that boasted it was a savage story of lust and ambition, X-rated and starring someone from France. Surely this was going to be one of those films that their mothers had warned them about and didn't want them to go and see. If they had have gone to watch the film in question, they would have found two hours later that they would most likely have been somewhat bemused because a smutty soft porn exploitation film, Jack Clayton's Room at the Top, is not. What it is instead is a damning look at class, masculinity, sex and the pitfalls of marital conformity. I have to be honest, I had never heard of this film before its recent Blu-ray release and to agree as I watched it and read more about the film, I kind of began to understand why. I'm of course familiar with the Angry Young Man films, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, Look Back in Anger, the films of Woodfall Films, Free Cinema, Lindsay Anderson and co. And to me, these people, these studios, was the canon with actors such as Albert Finney, Rita Tushingham, Richard Harris, which is possibly why Room at the Top were nearly entered into my sphere. Here is a film set in Northern England, away from the trendy South, directed by Jack Clayton, who at the time of making the film was 37, which was still considered old and to be part of the establishment, and starring Lawrence Harvey, who despite his looks, was an actor whose opinion of his own talent was considerably thought a great deal less of by the critics at the time. Perhaps then, Room at the Top was not prestige enough for some, too provincial, too lowbrow, Yet it is anything of the sort. It would go on to win two Oscars for Best Actress for Simone Signor and Best Adapted Screenplay, as well as the nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress and Best Director. It would also pick up the BAFTA that year for Best Film. So this recent BFI Blu-ray release, I decided it was time to dive in. And what a gem of a film I have discovered. Isn't that Susan's father's works? Joe, you're wasting your time. These two families, the Browns and the Waleses, they've as much brass as the rest of Warnley rolled together. Hey, what do you think of that one? Mm, not bad, but not grade one. What do you mean by that? Time I filled you in on the Lumpton Report on love. I've got a foolproof method for grading women. Partly money, partly background, partly Jay Lumpton's instinct. Now take Susan Brown. Are you offering her to me? No, seriously. Susan is grade one on every count. Well, you just have to look at her to know. Susan's not for you, love. Well, it just so happens that I like her. You're lust after her, you mean. Oh, no, no, it's not that at all. Well, it's partly that, but not just that. You see, she's so, well, she's so wholesome. The story is set in 1947 and revolves around Joe Lampton, played by Lawrence Harvey, who's a World War II veteran and former POW who leaves the bombed out streets in a town called Dufton and moves to Warnley, a fictional town. 
which would actually be filmed in Bradford, where he takes a job in the local treasury department of the government. Joe makes some new friends to work at work and decides that he is sick of his lot in life and wants to climb out of the social class and spies an opportunity in the form of local industrial Mr Brown's daughter Susan, played by Heather Sears, who intends on seducing and marrying. Mr and Mrs Brown intervene, sending Susan away from Joe, who by this time is quite besotted with him, and Joe falls into the arms of the unhappily married Alice, played by Simone Suron, and the pair begin a sexual relationship. Alice's husband, George, is also rich and powerful, and when he finds out of the affair, vows to ruin the couple. Joe, meanwhile, sleeps with Susan as she returns from abroad, getting her pregnant, and soon decides that he's actually in love with Alice. Confronted by Mr. Brown, Joe is given an ultimatum. He will either be set up for life, as long as he never sees Susan again, or he can marry her, therefore saving Susan from any shame. The problem is Joe is too proud to be set up, by Mr. Brown and reluctantly decides to marry Susan despite the fact he is in love with another woman. Alice, meanwhile, is left heartbroken and the film works towards a tragic conclusion. Now, Joe is literally an angry young man and setting is key to this, I believe. Warmly, or Bradford as it is, is a mill town. It's chimneys belching out smoke into the atmosphere. The kitchen sink film were hardly known for its glamour, and these locations seem to remind those particularly young men of their place. In Saturday night and Sunday morning, Albert Finney earns his weekly wage and then spends it just as quick as he can, can, and works in a place that he admits he wants to blow up, and likes nothing more than spending his evening having sex with married women. There's much more, more to it than that, and no likelihood that things are ever going to change. These industrial locations have changed little much since their inception. They are for workers, when with a select few, the Mr. Browns of this world, sat at the top, earning money and keeping the status quo. For Joe, life is a daily reminder that this is all beyond his reach, instilling in him a bitterness at those around him. The location is stark, yet contradictory to Joe's appearance. He is good-looking, well-kept, and more than attractive to the women in the film. Clayton even dares suggest that the ladies in office on their first day are sexually attracted to him as they look approvingly at him as he walks in. And perhaps this too adds to Joe's feeling of resentment. Surely if he is this good looking then it has to mean something. Yet very quickly the film establishes a cruel sense of class structure. Susan has a kind of boyfriend, Jack, a rich cad who is accepted by her father and has a rather nasty habit of popping up throughout the film to put Joe in his place. Jack was also shot down but also managed to escape and he was an officer and makes a rather ha annoying habit of reminding that Joe that he is nothing more than a lowly sergeant. Hello sergeant. Shopping for lingerie. What size are you? 44? Listen, do me a favour will you? I know all about you now. I know you were a squadron leader with a distinguished war record, the DSO and all the rest of it. But just do me a favor. The war's over. Stop calling me Sergeant. I'll try to remember. But Sergeant, you're selling me short. Didn't anyone tell you about my DFC? <laughs> it prompts a reaction from Joe that actually he enjoyed being a POW so he could study for his accounting exams. It's a kind of shocking admission and possibly it's not even true, but if there's an ever an insight into a young, young man, then this really truly is it. Joe is in this town, always on the peripheral, looking into a world that he does not belong. 
He's always presented in social situations that create awkward moments whereby his being working class is shown from mispronouncing words in a play and being laughed at or mocked at dinner by Alice's husband. The world is cruel to Joe, and despite the character's unlikability, and make no mistake, this film does not worship the character at all, and does not present him as some kind of martyr, it's hard not to empathise with how he's treated. You wouldn't believe it. The hell he thinks he is, sitting there like Al Capone, putting the finger on me. Oh, I got the works, the chairman of the establishment committee and the rest. As neat a job of blackmail as you ever saw. You follow me, Joe? Yes, he even called me Joe. If you don't leave Susan alone, there'll be no promotion for you. I told you months ago, Joe. I warned you. I tell you, Charles, in another couple you. of minutes, I would have taken his promotion out of his mouth and shoved it up his waistcoat. Yes, please. Two to one. Whilst watching Room at the Top and having recently decided to have a look at Saturday night and Sunday morning again, I could not help but wonder what on earth happened to the working class male in film and the society as a whole. Most actors today are well-educated from decent stock and have the financial safety net that allows them to pursue their arts and craft. The likes of Albert Finney and co. didn't. There were people who were acting in films that would situations that had been familiar to them. They drink, smoke and fuck and sometimes fight. Today we detest them, though we don't. They don't vote the way we want in referendums. We ban them from smoking in pubs, tell them how much they should and shouldn't drink, call them race if they dare to say anything we don't like, and treat them as a disease that needs to be cured. Films about the British working class, made by upper middle class people, always seem to present them in ways that are detrimental to the image of them. They're shit parents, they take drugs, they drink, and somehow we mistake this now as being authentic. Looking at Room at the Top, Jack Clayton and writer Neil Patterson have a far more sophisticated view as Joe as a character than you are likely to get in some modern produced misery fest. He exists in a variety of contradictory states. He's a cad, a lover, a bastard. He can be caring, confident, confused, vulnerable, sensitive. You name it, he goes through it. Ergo, he is not one-dimensional, but a multifaceted being living in a town that status quo makes even the most simplest desires of buying a nicer house seem almost unimaginable. Who wouldn't be pissed off? Joe may think he will find happiness with Susan, but it's Alice for whom he begins to fall in love with. How do we know this? Well, he rages at her, having admitted once that she posed nude. He is jealous that she has sex with her husband. This is a character who's in a monologue, is fighting love, lust and the world at large. And in these outbursts, you can sense that Joe is fighting a personal battle with what he truly wants and desires in the world. I'd like a picture of you like that. There is a picture of me in the nude, somewhere. <laughs> You're joking. No, there really is. I was at the university at that time, and I met an artist at a party. He wanted a model. I don't suppose it was even a good painting. How often did you do this? Only once. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. I don't tell lies, you know that. You never told me. Why didn't you tell me? Because I had forgotten about it. Oh, darling, with a fuss. I didn't sleep with him, if that's what you're thinking. Why? Why did you have to do it? There are millions of women a lot poorer than you ever were who'd rather die than expose themselves for a few lousy rotten shillings. Damn you to hell, I feel I'd like to beat you black and blue. But what's it to do with you? 
was long before I met you. I must remember your beastly little provincial mind doesn't like nudity. You stupid bitch, it doesn't like at all. Don't you see? It's the idea of other people looking at your nakedness that I hate. It's not decent, don't you see? Alice is older, more mature, and being French, slightly more exotic. Yet she's also married, and husband George has the means and the power to make their life a living hell, should Alice leave him. It's the cruelty of class in the film. Again, the one person who he really loves will ultimately deny him because her husband is rich and powerful. And this doomed affair is often made all the more tragic by Joe repeatedly carrying Alice over the threshold, desperately it seems, fantasising about her one day becoming his wife. Susan loves Joe in a kind of childish way. She thinks that when they have sex it will somehow change her. Everything is going to be perfect, wonderful and happy. But this is not that film, and Joe most definitely is not that man. And make no mistake, Room at the Top is not just about Joe and masculinity. This is also an interesting look at female characters. Alice is a formidable and fascinating character, and Simone Sunrise deservedly took an Oscar for her performance in it. Alice represents a great unsaid, a woman who likes to have afternoon sex sessions in a friend's apartment whose marriage is nothing more than a job that she has to go to. Even though she is well off, there is a sense that she's doing nothing but treading water, keeping up appearances and being dutiful. The institution of marriage is not one of marital bliss, but and not death do part, but more living death till parting. Room at the top tears at the fabric of society. The sanctity of marriage is presented as a as not some bastion of decency, but instead a rather dull and underwhelming formality that leaves those with it craving more hedonistic and sexual desires. Indeed, Joe and Alice are attracted to each other and motivated by the refusal not to simply make do. Joe has a good job, but it just makes him want more, and he becomes even more aggrieved that he can't have it. Alice is married, kept, she should be happy, but why settle for okay when you can have better? The scene when Alice's husband comes to Joe's office to threaten him is never going to give you the happy ending everyone wants. In two minutes, Joe and Alice's possible life together is destroyed by wealth, power and influence, and there is nothing either of them can do about it. This is life, and fuck you for even thinking any different. Sit down. What can I do for you? Cigarette? Nice case you have there. You know why I'm here. Alice tells me she wants to divorce me. Well, I'm not agreeable. You haven't any choice. She's my wife, and she's going to remain my wife. I want to make this quite clear to you. She has no grounds for divorce. Everybody knows the way you treat Alice about you and your women. But nobody can prove anything. The difference between you and me is that I haven't been indiscreet enough to leave evidence lying around. Meaning what? Just this. If she brings an action for divorce, I'll fight it. I'll smear you both across the headlines. It'll make fine reading. Elspeth's flat, the naked bathing in Dorset and all the rest of it. How did you know? I make it my business to know. It'll break you because you can't stand a scandal like that and you know it. And you won't get Alice either, because I still won't let her go. You can't hold her. 
Maybe she can't divorce you, but she can leave you. You can't stop her from leaving you. Can you keep her? I can keep her, because I love her. She's ten years older than you, and she hasn't a penny of her own. If she leaves me, I'll sue you for enticement. Then you won't be able to support even yourself. You've got everything pretty well worked out, haven't you? I have. There are no loopholes. Get it clear. From now on, you leave Alice alone. Understand me? Why won't you let her go? Why? Because she's my wife. That's why. Are you trying to tell me you still love her? I'm not trying to tell you anything. I'll let you off lightly. There'll be no more warnings. Room at the Top is also a film about landscape and the intersection this has with characters. There is a melancholy beauty to it in this largely humorous film with a serious tone that is complemented by the gorgeous black and white photography of Freddie Francis, who would also shoot Saturday night and Sunday morning after this. It's also a wonderfully stylish film, the use of shadows, the way in which Clayton frames scenes, with Joe often being framed in interior scenes as very much the outsider looking in. And also I particularly liked the camera movements which would follow action and give you blocking so effortlessly you forgot even the camera was there. I also particularly liked the heated exchange between Alice and Joe. Clayton cuts back and forth in a shot reverse shot as Joe becomes more angry and abusive before we eventually pan with him as he crashes across the room to Alice who is standing there casually smoking, totally in control and not taking any of his shit. This is toxic masculinity being called out and demolished by a woman who knows exactly that underneath the vitriol lurks a rather spooked boy in need of an emotional spanking. After one argument, Alice asks Joe if he wants a cup of tea. I don't want anything, he snaps back. It's such a loaded response. Of course he wants something. He wants to be loved. He wants to be in love. He doesn't want to be poor. He wants a nice house, a shag, a cuddle, a drink, a cigarette. And ultimately, Joe is a young man who is thoroughly pissed off. And Room at the Top is an angry film that doesn't offer you any comfort or an easy ride. I didn't like the person who is Joe all that much. But you know where he is coming from, and from a film I'd never heard of before or seen. It was an exciting and daring work that felt, still felt relevant and fresh 60 years later. And I can heartily recommend picking up this BFI Blu-ray. The transfer is absolutely stunning. It's not the prettiest film, but as I said, I think it really captures the mood and the feeling of Bradford. And it also has an interesting commentary as well on it. So that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. Many thanks for listening. Um, I will be back soon with another episode. You can find me on 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can also find me on the Master of Cinema cast with Joachim or at mockcast.blogspot.com. You can find me on Twitter at 24framescast. And you can always find me on Facebook. Um, I'm Tom Jennings with a, for some reason I've got a hoodie on making a particularly angry face. I don't know why. But other than that, I will be in contact soon. Many thanks for listening.